District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. I want to share with you all my new policy brief with Independent Women's Forum, and I'm also going to dive deep into the new E15 biofuel rule and what its impact on the environment and our pocketbooks will be this summer. As you may have seen, last week I published my very first policy focus with the Independent Women's Forum. I haven't published a paper of this magnitude, I think, since my college times. I didn't really have any published papers in scholarly journals or things of that sort, but I published a lot of papers for my coursework, and this kind of reminded me of it but a lot more enjoyable. And now to see the fruits of my labor materialize through this, and especially on Earth Week and Earth Day this week, I am so happy it was perfectly time to come out right about now. I want to briefly hone in on some aspects of it. I want you guys to read it, of course, but I'll give you a summary of what you can expect if you haven't checked it out yet. I've also put out a video explainer on my YouTube channel, breaking down conservation versus preservation and breaking down the various facets of my policy focus, but it's called the future of environmentalism, true conservation. It is six pages long. It's a really easy read. I kind of give a background on how the U.S. has led in the environmental space, how we've curbed emissions, how we've innovated technology to produce and streamline the production of energy, how our fossil fuels are produced cleaner compared to those we are rivals with, and adversaries even. I talk about how we've corrected a lot of problems with respect to species conservation, wildlife conservation, habitat restoration efforts by having positive human impacts to bolster that and also contributions of hunters, anglers, things of that sort. I also talk and highlight about three particular instances of free market environmentalism at work. So true conservation is kind of a multi-pronged approach, but it basically welcomes the wise use of natural resources and it believes and adheres to the notion that human at human impact is positive and it should be welcomed if we want to bolster the environment. Preservation, which is often conflated for conservation, really admonishes and scoffs at human input and doesn't really welcome human access. And that is largely what is being advocated for in the public square today, by government, by media, by many in kind of the more preservationist wing of the outdoor industry. I explained through this policy focus how to distinguish between both conservation and preservation wings of environmentalism. It's six pages long, like I said, really easy to read. Head over to iwf.org. If you click on my user profile, it's the most recent publication that comes up If you need a resource to dispense and to share and and a good template for what is kind of like a center right or what is kind of like a free market or true conservation alternative to what is being echoed and promoted today, I hope my policy focus can serve as an example. I think it's pretty comprehensive, like I said, with it not being pages upon pages of scholarly work. It's a more condensed format. I think people can use it as a blueprint for their discussions. I really hope you do use it as a blueprint for discussions 
about environmentalism and kind of the ignored issues of environmentalism and by extension conservation because everyone loves to focus on one they love to focus on climate and climate is not tied and responsible for every facet it does play a role but there are other areas where climate plays a more minuscule role and how you can actually talk about each individual issue separate of climate and really get people on board rather than fearmonger. so i talk about that in the policy focus as well and like i had mentioned earlier head over to youtube it's about 20 minutes long i go dive deep into this policy brief. And like I said, I further elaborate on conservation versus preservation, why I've been focusing on this bent. And I hope you check it out and read it and let me know your thoughts about it. Last week, the Biden White House announced their intention to boost the domestic production of homegrown biofuels to address what they call Putin's price hike at the pump in the hopes of lowering costs for American families. That's a lot to deconstruct. If you guys notice before and before I go into biofuels, this is a really incorrect assertion to make. Inflation was starting to go up before Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The charts, numerous charts show this, numerous articles can point to this. So this is a really lazy argument to say that it's Putin's price hike. Now, let's talk about what the problem with biofuels are. Are they really a substitute for conventional gasoline? Will it ameliorate the cost of the pump? Now, here's their fact sheet about them claiming that this is going to the development of homegrown biofuels is critical to expanding Americans options for affordable fuel in the short term and to building real energy independence in the long term by reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. And this is from the White House fact sheet dated April 12th. And they said today the president is announcing new steps to achieve this goal by increasing fuel supplies, offering more consumer choices, and reducing gasoline prices for all Americans. Okay, then. So they claim that this is an affordable fuel option into the summer. And this is kind of unprecedented. I don't know if you guys know this much about biofuel. So it is 15% ethanol and 85% gasoline. Under the renewable standard, renewable fuel standard, gasoline tanks cannot have more than 10% ethanol. That's currently a standard. But they want to gradually increase it to E15, and then some people are very ambitious and they want it to go towards E30. But according to their plan, they want to make it available throughout the summer, which has been previously forbidden in the United States under the Environmental Protection Agency because of Clean Air Act concerns that it'll lead to more smog, more pollution, and that is not really environmentally friendly. I'm going to explain more about that. Typically, in the past, the EPA did not sell E15 gasoline between the summer months from June 1st to September 15th. And apparently, the EPA is going to issue an emergency waiver to make it so that they're going to be able to sell this more gasoline stations. Now, how prevalent is E15 in gas stations across the country? Currently, it's only available in 2,300 gas stations. There are about 150,000 gas stations. That calculates to about 1.5% of gasoline stations. I really don't know in terms of lack of availability how they can advertise it as such. They claim that the emergency waiver can, quote, help increase fuel supplies, give consumers more choice to get lower prices, and provide savings to many families. At current prices, E15 can save a family 10 cents per gallon of gasoline on average, and many stores sell E15 at an even greater discount. 
and they claim this is the rich part. For working families, families eager to travel and visit their loved ones, that will add up to real savings. Allowing higher levels of blending will also reduce our dependency on foreign fuels as we rely more heavily on homegrown biofuels. This will help us bridge towards real energy independence. And they claim the EPA, by issuing this emergency fuel waiver, will work with more states across the country to ensure that there are no significant air quality impacts through the summer driving session. That, again, goes against precedent that the EPA established, given the fact that a lot of studies into this showed that there would be more pollution. I'll read more, and I'll explain more momentarily. And they say that they want to have additional action to facilitate the use of E15 year-round. When President Trump tried to do this in 2019, and I thought this was very wrongheaded of him in his administration to do, the federal court struck it down, saying that he went outside the bounds of his authority to do it, only Congress had. So now it's really funny that people who complained about it when Trump did it are now giving a blind eye to the Biden administration to do it. It was wrong then, it's wrong now. The administration has announced the following key steps. $700 million for biofuel producers, $5.6 million for infrastructure for renewable fuels through the Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program. Oh, gosh. $100 million for biofuels infrastructure. And they say that the USDA announced $100 million in new funding for grants for biofuels infrastructure. And they claim it's going, they also want to spur, spur a new market in sustainable aviation fuels. And they conclude that they want to expand the use of canola oil. For other forms such as diesel and jet fuel. New pathways for fuels to participate in the Renewable Fuel Standard Program to provide renewable diesel, jet fuel, and other fuels. This action demonstrates the EPA's commitment to approving new petitions for renewable fuels that can provide greenhouse gas benefits as well as reduce reliance on petroleum fuels. Okay, there's a lot to break down with. Is this really renewable? What are the cost-saving measures or lack of cost-saving measures? And can you actually use E15 fuels in most motors? Let's break down the cost quickly. I was researching for an article that I will have on E15 later, but in my research, I found actually, like I said, that 1.5% of gas stations, that factoid that I put out, that only less than 2% of gas stations offer this. How is this plan going to be implemented? The infrastructure plans that they have, the grandiose infrastructure plans they have, if only a meager amount of gas stations can technically accommodate this type of fuel source. And they say that it'll reduce, let's talk about the cost. So they claim that E15 gas is going to lower gas 10 cents per gallon compared to typical blends. According to Quartz, which is an online publication, they say of the 150,000 fueling stations, like I said, only 1.5 sell E15 gas. The remaining 98.5% of gas stations may not have the proper equipment to safely store E15. They say, according to the numbers in the breakdown, that refueling with E15 would knock about 10 cents off the average gas price of $4.20 per gallon gas. Applying those savings to sales at the 1.5% of gas carrying E15 fuel and the average national gas price could fall about 0.2 cents per gallon. That would, in the best case scenario, lower the national average to about 4.19 cents per gallon. $4.19 per gallon. That's not a cost savings measure at all. That's completely deceptive. And if this article could simply break it down like that, it's it's meager. It's like that 16 cents saving they talked about for July last year, 4th of July last year. Paltry and very insignificant. 
And according to the Department of Energy, the EPA defines E15 as gasoline blended with 105 to 15% ethanol. In terms of what type of vehicles with motors can use this? So E15 cannot be used in conventional vehicles if they were made before 2001. And there are lots of other restrictions. You cannot use E15 fuel in older cars, motorcycles, lawnmowers, and boats. So how available is it going to be if there are limitations to the type of motors that can accommodate it? You can't change the internal combustion engine to accommodate this. Like it's going to create so much reworking and rewiring of different motors. And can you imagine with if you have to retrofit your motor to accommodate this new gas? Oh my gosh, it's so costly. I mean, that's not going to save money for working families. It's impractical. It's for flexible fuel vehicles and conventional models after 2001 and has such limitations. I'm not even done scratching the surface. We have to talk about the environmental impact. I actually looked to several sources, which I normally would not point to, but I have to use them because they actually are very right on the issue. So Yale Environment 360, this is from Yale University, from their School of the Environment. The case against more ethanol, it's simply bad for the environment. And they claim in their subhead, the revisionist effort to increase the percentage of ethanol blended with U.S. gasoline continues to ignore the major environmental impacts of growing corn for fuel and how it inevitably leads to higher prices for this staple food crop. It remains a bad idea whose time has passed. They talk about the impact of growing corn in the U.S. heartland and how it exhausts a lot of land. They say that uh, one that will increase in terms of costs if we even add more ethanol to our gasoline. Higher sig- ethanol blends still produce significant levels of air pollution, reduce fuel efficiency, jack up corn and other food prices, and have been treated with skepticism by some car manufacturers for the damage they do to engines. More on what they do to marine motors later. Growing corn to run our cars was a bad idea 10 years ago. Increasing our reliance on corn ethanol in the coming decades is doubling down on a poor bet. The effort to rehabilitate corn ethanol is linked to the perceived insufficiency of federal mandates known as the Renewable Fuel Standard, requiring an escalating quantity of ethanol from corn and cellulosic sources to be blended with gasoline annually until 2022. This type of ethanol, which was supposed to supplant that made from corn in meeting the mandate, has proven a monumental disappointment and the EPA has taken a big step back from requiring to use it. To continue to meet the renewable fuel mandate will require further use of corn-based ethanol, which is constrained by the so-called blend wall, a limit related to current engine design because most of the ethanol now available is only blended with gasoline at a level of 10%. The ethanol industry and others are proposing raising the blend level to 30%. Without such a break in the blend wall, the renewable fuels standard mandate are in trouble. At present, though, fewer than 2% of filling stations in the U.S. sell higher than 10% ethanol blends. This is the kicker. Shrouded in the political fumes and corrosive influence of special interests, the economic fundamentals of ethanol are clear in the light of day. Two prices determine its profitability, the price of corn and the price of oil. The higher the price of corn, the more expensive it is to divert from feeding animals or making high fructose corn syrup and instead distill it as alcohol fuel for cars and trucks. Second, the higher the price of oil, the more economically ethanol can be blended with gasoline. When corn is cheap and oil prices are high, ethanol margins are fat. But when corn prices rise and oil prices fall, ethanol margins are flat. 
They said it took off in the mid-2000s. So that's kind of a summation of it. It's more carbon intensive. And actually, a recent study, believe this or not, a study that was recently conducted talked about the actually more exhaustive nature of biofuels like ethanol. And this came from, I believe, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This was February 14th, 2022. And they said the U.S. Renewable Fuel Standard created by 2007 legislation mandates that such fuels partially replace petroleum-based ones. So far, however, the mandate has been nearly fulfilled by corn ethanol, a fuel that may be worse for the climate than the gasoline it replaces. I'm going to talk about the percentage. So they say that this institution has assessed the environmental impacts of corn ethanol and the policy that governs it using a combination of econometric analyses, land use data, and biophysical modeling. It was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences showing that carbon emissions from using land to grow corn can negate or even reverse any climate advantages of corn ethanol relative to gasoline. From an environmental and climate climate standpoint, corn ethanol is not a good biofuel solution. Instead, the findings align with the movement in bioenergy research toward developing next-generation biofuels, such as those made from perennial non-food plants grown on land less suited for conventional agriculture. Let's see, what is the percentage in terms of how much more carbon-intensive it is? The numbers were staggering when I read it, so I'm going to read it for you guys here. The sum effect is that the carbon emissions of corn-based ethanol produced to meet the renewable fuel standard are at least as high as those from the equivalent amount of gasoline or possibly higher, likely by 24% or more. A final point I want to hone in on, how does E15 destroy, let's say, a marine motor? You're a boating enthusiast, you like to fish. Gasoline prices are higher, but like I explained before, E15 is not retrofitted for lawnmowers and boats. Let's show and explain why that's the case. This is from Boating Magazine, published in August 2019. E15 gas is bad for boat engines. Boating Magazine cited a 2011 study that was used to test three different outboards. The 300 HP Verado representing fuel-injected four-stroke technology, a 9.9 HP four-stroke representing carbureted four-stroke technology, and a 200-horsepower EFI two-stroke to represent legacy technology. A pair of engines, one running on E15 and the other running on E0, gasoline with no ethanol, were subjected to a 300-hour endurance duty cycle. On E15, the Verado failed three exhaust valves. On E15, the 9.94 stroke developed a misfire and poor run quality at idle, and the fuel pump gasket showed signs of deterioration. On E15, the 200 E FI outboard failed a connecting rod bearing. All the outboards tested on E0 fuel completed the test unscathed. And I can cite the study if you're interested. It was commissioned by the Department of Energy. A post-test inspection revealed all of the motors tested on E15 showed signs of elevated piston and exhaust temperature because the fuel mixture became excessively lean. E15 contains 5% oxygen by weight compared to 3.5% oxygen for E10. The additional oxygen content causes enleanment 
of the engine during enlinement exhaust gas temperatures rise unlike flex fuel auto engines the marine engine cannot self-adjust to accommodate fuel with more than 10 percent ethanol The issue of materials compatibility is especially concerning for those legacy engines, which can be 40 years old. It continues. So that read the study. If you're curious, I'm not making this up out of thin air. The labeling of E15 as potentially disastrous and hazardous at gasoline stations. They had an effort to do with that. NNMA is a great resource and a final resource on biofuels. I want to point to Mandy Gunasekara, past guest on the show and former EPA chief of staff to EPA Administrator Wheeler. She said that the biofuel waiver is nothing more than a publicity stunt and that the Biden administration is simply looking to look like it's doing something, taking a shiny object approach to alleviate the harm brought to American families with crushing inflation and subsequently higher energy costs. And she writes this in Real Clear Markets. She pointed out kind of the hypocrisy placed towards it. She again says that they want to continue to rely on fossil fuels from our adversaries without actually looking here in our backyard. And funny enough, the Biden administration actually announced that they will allow for more exploration on oil and gas leases, but they minimized the percentage of leases that will be able to be realized and tapped into. So they could go to their full potential, but they still refuse to. It's not really going to have a major impact in the short term, I don't think. But Mandy has a great article breaking down this new biofuel rule. Read the fact sheet for yourself. Learn more about this for yourself. Again, there are lots of sources available. This is actually probably the rare environmental issue where you're going to get people on the right and on the left to agree to not pursue this. We have different conclusions. Some people say, well, this is not exactly the right route for a clean energy future. Some of us are saying, well, we can still use traditional fuel sources, conventional fuel sources to power our motors uh, for transportation purposes or for recreational boating purposes. But we can all agree that this is a really, really bad solution and it will have adverse effects on our pocketbooks and also the environment. Thanks for listening to this episode of District of Conservation. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you're following the podcast on your preferred player. We recommend Apple because that's where the largest share of our listenership hails from. You can also find us on Spotify and dozens of other platforms. Make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And please, please, please go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify. Those help us go a long way in seeing how far we can go and measure our progress. So we really appreciate that. If you enjoy this podcast, please share the word with your friends, share links to individual episodes and to the podcast. Want to appear on the podcast? Have an interesting story to tell? I'm all ears. Shoot me a message and we'll do our best to process your request.